A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. And we're going to start out the show by thanking the people that subscribed to our Patreon in the past week. We have a Patreon where not only does it help support our show if you are a subscriber, but we also offer a lot of free content. Free. Well, it's a subscription. Additional. Additional content that's not available on this feed. Lots of shows that have never been heard before. By you. By you. By you. <laughs> if you're not a subscriber, but our patrons have heard. Mm-hmm. What did we recently do? We have a Mystery and Macabre episode up, another one coming. We have after shows. We have access to a Discord server. Um, there's lots of stuff. And we have like a bunch of old shows about other topics. Yeah. So if you're interested, patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene for as little as $5 a month. Thank you. <laughs> this week... <laughs> We, okay, I'm going to read some of these. We had Shannon, Helena, Jennifer, Carlos, uh, our boy, Alan Strickland Williams. Love him. Big fan of Alan Strickland Williams. He's He's a friend of the pod, friend for life. Bridget, Kristen, Tori, Mandy, Emily, Miranda, Debbie, Alicia, Senjo, Donovan, James, Rena, Ariana, Orishia, Allison, Beth, Megan, Kitties for Life, Ash, Jessica, Melissa, MK, Catherine, Samantha, Christina, Stephanie, and Kelly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Desi, what do you have for us this week? This week, we are going to get into a New York City society scandal from the 1950s, one of the first of many crimes of the century. And it involves one of the first major tea spellings within that world as well, a book called Answered Prayers, which was the beginning of the end for writer Truman Capote, who pretty much burned it all down when he began publishing chapters preview chapters of the book in Esquire magazine in the 70s. Truman will get his own show one day if I have anything to say about it, so I'm not going to be diving into his life story except where it relates to this case. But you can see why the subject of this case appealed to Truman. They're basically, they have a lot of similarities. Anne Woodward was also a small southern, small town southern girl uh, who, much like Capote, managed to infiltrate New York City's high society crowd. She did it the old-fashioned way by marrying into one of the most prominent families, the Woodwards. 
Billy Woodward was the handsome young scion of the Woodward family. He did the unthinkable by marrying this older showgirl, and needless to say, his mother, Elsie, did not approve. Um, This all ends in a tragic murder, but that's only the beginning of this seemingly cursed life that Anne Woodward would continue dealing with post-murder. This would go on to become the basis for Dominic Dunn's novel, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles which I read as a child, by the way. Wow. <laughs> I was a Dominic Dunn stan from a very early age. <laughs> of course <laughs> you were. Which is very telling. Yeah. Um, my main source for this book, however, was Deliberate Cruelty by Roseanne Montillo. So who is this mystery woman who managed to infiltrate high society and contributed to destroying that insulated bubble that it had ex- existed in to, up until that point? She was born Evangeline Lucille Crowell, December 12, 1950, in Pittsburgh, Kansas, on a dilapidated farm to a lazy father and an ambitious mother. That's how the book described it. Lazy. He's lazy. This guy's lazy. Now, the mom is bursting with energy. She is a perfect farm wife. She is harvesting. She pickles. She preserves. She takes care of the chickens. Anne's mom, Ethel, didn't care for the drudgery of farm life, and she had plans to go back to school at some point to pursue a teaching career, however. Farming life was always a struggle, and the Crowells seemed to have particularly bad luck, culminating in an accident where Anne's dad, Jesse, broke his back. So Wait, was, this is the lazy guy? Yeah, so he was lazy before. You know he's going to milk that back now injury. He's, now he's got the, I can't work. I broke my back. He's got a good excuse now, so... Yeah. At this point, the family relied on Ethel to provide, provide the sole income, and she had to focus back on fucking farming shit and put a hold on her, her degree, which she was not happy about. Further tragedy strikes the family when their four-year-old um, son dies. He becomes violently ill and just suddenly dies one night. This marked the beginning of the dissolution of the Crowell's marriage and the beginning of Anne's life being shuffled around amongst family members as her parents struggled to make things work. This only gave Ethel more desire to succeed. She finally returns to school in 1919, but once again, she had to drop out when the farm was foreclosed on and the family had to move to Western Kansas. She became more and more depressed and frustrated by Jesse's lack of ambition. She hated Kansas and saw little opportunity for them there, but Jesse refused to give up his futile effort of making Kansas work. There's a lot of negative um, press about Kansas back in these days. Really? People were like, get out of Kansas. It's a dust. Like, it was in a bad way at this point. Wow. I don't know. when. What year is this? 1919. So it's pre-depression. But I think a lot of people moved there thinking it was going to be this great place. And it was just a bad time there. They were haters on Kansas. They were haters. Now, Ethel would suggest career moves to Jesse, and he would be like, nah. Uh, honestly, nothing more relatable than trying to motivate a man. Like, when you see it a lot. Uh, she finally does get her degree and becomes a principal to a small school that's two hours away. But married women weren't allowed to teach at this school, so she said she was widowed, and it felt like that anyway to Ethel. Wow. So she basically just moved up there and told them her husband was dead. Uh, 
So she kind of lived by the schoolhouse and she didn't see Anne until the end of the school year. She just lived up there and she left wa- him. She wanted to get out of that house bad. She, she, she was out. She wanted to get away from Jesse. Now, the next school year, she got a position that was closer. It was a 32-mile commute. How, uh, I got a question. <laughs> How do you even be lazy in 1919? You don't have television. You don't have a phone. You don't have the internet. Like, what is he doing? Like, he, you had to be not lazy just to, like, not be bored out of your mind, he right? Was kicking a, can, a tin can. Around. That's all he was doing. Ali Ali Oxen Free. <laughs> That's those games where you see them, they have like a stick and a wagon wheel, and they're just like, oh, those things. Yeah. The old, those olden days games. I thought that's what little rich boys played. No, that's like, when you're playing with garbage, you don't oh, have you don't oh, have things. if it's garbage. But you know that little hoop and stick game that you see little little Lord Fauntleroy boys playing? Oh, I thought that was like poor kid things. Maybe the rich kids had the fancy one. They had like a one you could buy. And yeah. the other kids just used scraps yeah, that they, they found on the farm. Right. So not only that, Jesse becomes resentful of his wife being ambitious and I trying to Jesse. succeed. <laughs> He's like, why are you making me look bad? <laughs> she eventually takes Anne to live closer, to live with her by the school that she's working at. And she would send Jesse half of her monthly salary to shut him up. So many people saw Ethel's lifestyle as morally bankrupt, living that way without your husband around. But a lot of women were secretly jealous that she was able to cut her bum of a husband loose, but kind of low-key not to get, get divorced. Yeah. But Jesse had his pride, and it wasn't long before he asked for a divorce. Jesse fought for sole custody, but eventually gave up saying, ah, the mother-daughter, they're just so close. I don't want to hurt Anne. But the truth was, Ethel did some sleuthing, and she found out that Jesse had been boning their neighbor. <gasps> and she threatened to expose the affair. So when Anne was eight in 1923, the divorce was finalized. And this was the first divorce in Ethel's family, which brought them great shame. So she had no choice but to be like, yeah, but well, he was pork in the neighbor. So right. what else, what choice did I have? <laughs> which finally shut them up. I mean, she wanted it anyway, but she, she found her out. Yeah. Jesse eventually moves to Detroit and he pretty much never sees Anne again. Many years later, he would believe his daughter had changed her name and was actually the actress Eve Arden. Now, uh, she does change her name eventually to Anne Eden, but that's like later on. Um, at the age of 11, she does make the decision she wants to be an actress, and she informs her mother um, she's not going to be poor when she moves to California and becomes the next Clara Bow. So wait for that. Yeah. Uh, Ethel was also determined to not be poor, and she begins giving very popular history lectures in the evenings. It's at one of these meetings that she meets a man named Percy Jordan. Anne, of course, doesn't like the idea of Ethel spending more time with a man, which meant she would get less time with her mom. And Ethel and Anne began to fight constantly at this point. It's during this period that Anne really develops her acting skills because she's fakely smiling in order to get what she wants from her mother. She's being a secret little bitch to Percy, but not letting <laughs> on to her mom. She was determined to get them break to break up. But when she's 12, she wakes up one morning and finds the house empty only to find out later that her mom and Percy had eloped. (gasps) The newlyweds returned home, not only married, but with Percy's annoying teenage son, Charles, in tow. Not Charles. Not annoying Charles. Anne begins praying for the marriage to end and is only too happy to see Percy was doing the work for her. Classic Jonah Hill move. 
What made him fall for Ethel, seeing her give these lectures, he now resents and doesn't think it's appropriate for a woman to be out there in public having people look at her. Oh. Tale as old as time. The nerve. So she does walk out on him. Ethel's not having it. She's like, fine, you stay here with fucking Charles. Uh, I'm going to go back out and do my fucking thing. Um, she, uh, she's also um, working on getting her masters, et cetera. He doesn't want her to do that. But she does eventually come back because that's just the times they were in. She's, she's perusing, I'm sorry, she's getting her masters in private so he doesn't know. And he catches her and they get into a physical fight. He goes at her because he catches her papers, her master's papers, I guess. And that obviously escalates into more fighting. And she eventually leaves him again for real this time. She gets her degree and she moves her, her and Anne move to Kansas City. Now, unfortunately, just as as things are looking up for her, the stock market crashes and the Great Depression begins. But oddly enough, as the majority of the nation faced poverty and unemployment throughout the 30s, the newspapers that Anne's mom got, got to like look for jobs also carries a lot of coverage of New York City's high society. Now, this is a group of people who are completely unfazed by the economic depression. And Anne is riveted. She loves reading about these people. These, they're, they have tons of money. They're hanging out until all hours at El Morocco, the store club. And then they all roll out um, right out of the club into Ruben's Deli for breakfast. Now... I looked up Ruben's Deli, of course, because you know I like taking a side, <laughs> I like doing a side dive into something completely unnecessary. Me too, does. But it is, um, Ruben's was a very popular deli back in those days, and they claim, Arnold Ruben, who is the Ruben in Ruben's Deli, claims to have invented the Ruben sandwich. Well, his name is Ruben. I mean, he has a good point. But there is con- there is like other people who claim that they uh, invented it. Do you know about the Rachel sandwich? No. There's also a Rachel sandwich. That's like a Reuben it's version, like, yeah, like a female version of the Reuben. <laughs> yeah, it's like the it's the chick version. I like the Rachel. It's with turkey. Oh, because I like yeah, I like a turkey I like, sandwich. Um, I like a Reuben. It's like with turkey and coleslaw and like Russian dressing. Oh yeah, I've heard of this sandwich. I, that. I really like that sandwich. That sandwich sounds good. Um, the Reuben is also good. He also claims to have invented New York style cheesecake. Wow, this guy is just inventing all these iconic he, dishes. <laughs> um, so the the other thing about Reuben's that I love is Reuben's also had was one of the first places to do the celebrity sandwiches. <gasps> do you know what I when they uh, named yes. the celebrity sandwiches? So some of the people on Ruben's menu, it's like a, you know, when you go back really far, you're like, I don't know, 90% of these people. Right. Because they're probably like vaudeville actors that none of us has has heard of. But they do have, um, had a hopper, she's turkey, India relish, I don't know what that is, lettuce and Russian dressing. A lot of Russian dressing happening in these sandwiches. Ethel Merman is turkey, tomato, hard-boiled egg and Russian dressing. So... I would love to have a sandwich named after me. That's my dream. Any kind of food dish, but a sandwich is particularly, uh, there's so many variations. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, she's reading all these society. It's like, it's like her version of delisted, right? Right. (laughs) Back in the day, you read the society columns. It was a big deal. What was so interesting and 
because Desi and I read so many old newspapers when we research these episodes, something that's always really interesting to me, like from the 50s and before, in these papers, they would just write about like who went to lunch where, and they weren't even like celebrities, just like people with some modicum of influence maybe, or just like, they'd be like, these people arrived back in town today. This family's back in town. I feel like it was like, they were the celebrities before movie stars kind of took over. Even at, even after in the era of movie stars. Right. Like, I mean, I took I think it took a while for it. I'm just saying it. I think they took a backseat once movie stars sort of came out. Yes, of but course. But I think before movie stars, that was like the people wanted to follow the lives of those people. Yeah. Which I, is still happening today. I mean it's sort of like before the internet, they had like a combination of like, this is a newspaper where we do journalism, but also it's a little bit of like neighborhood gossip. Yes. Yes. Like it's all in one place. Well, at the time, one of the famous society reporters said it mattered as much to be a part of cafe society as it did to be alive. Mm. Like it was very important. Ethel struggled to find teaching jobs. So she came up with a new plan. She decided she would open a taxi service. With a small amount of savings she had managed to scrape up, she bought three cars, hired drivers, and the Westport Taxi and Livery Service was born. Obviously, this is not a typical business venture for a woman in those days. It was a pretty rough trade, and the men who worked for her, although grateful for a job, were resentful to have to work for a woman. Ethel made sure Anne knew to stay away from uh, those rough-around-the-edges drivers, Anne had no problem staying away because she was scared of them, and she would often hear the men make rude jokes and be critical of her mother's looks. She pitied and resented her mother, uh, who was trying so hard to make ends meet and barely managing, and she vows then and there that she will never be like her mother. She fantasized more and more of her life outside of the taxi company in Kansas City. She saw herself as Joan Crawford, who was also raised in poverty and worked her way up from dancer to movie star. She had her mother's grit and determination, but wouldn't misplace that effort on something as lame as taxis. <laughs> as she entered her 20s, her beauty really began to stand out. This is when she officially changed her name to Anne Eden to be seen as more sophisticated. She began practicing her charm offensive on the drivers, much to Ethel's chagrin. And in 1937, she got a job at a department store. Shortly after starting, her manager asked her if she would be interested in posing for their print ads. She was like, hell yeah. They connected her with a modeling agency in New York City, and she was waiting for them to respond to her. But she didn't want to wait. She bought a car, and she drove to New York City to start her path down stardom. to stardom. Her mother initially was unsure about it, but she was like, how can I stop her from doing what I once tried to do? And she gave her $400 in crumpled up $5 bills for Anne to start her new life, which is so sweet. Yeah. Now, Anne absolutely adores New York City. She immediately begins creating this life that she had dreamed of. She loves walking around the city and whatever, spinning, looking at the skyscrapers, having drinks with friends at like hot spots. NYC (laughs) just got here this morning. Yeah, she has her suitcase, her little cute vintage suitcase. She's the star to be. She's spinning. She, of course, the Robert, the modeling agency is like, who? Like they have no idea who she is, but they end up taking her on. She bleaches her already blonde hair even bleachier to make it more glam. 
Uh, she starts getting modeling jobs. It's not acting, but she's like, it's a start. She's advised to tweak her nose. And she's like, well, Joan Crawford did it. So she quickly agrees to get a little tweak. Damn. Nose jobs were hardcore back then. Seriously. You had to be dead serious. So through this agency, she starts landing work as an actress, actually, but on radio. And in 1940, she is voted the most beautiful girl in radio, which is like low-key, not a compliment. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's a famous saying, right? You have a face for radio. Yeah. Uh, But I think she is is cute, but it's just a funny, it's a funny win. So with her modeling money, she gets a very chic apartment. She begins working off-Broadway. She's meeting powerful people in the industry. And she she's very modern girl. She's like, I'll date them to get ahead. Who fucking cares? Uh, besides, it boosts my confidence that these men would fuck me. <laughs> um, but after a few years, she hits 25. And things aren't going as fast as uh, Anne wanted them to. She starts getting a little bit of self-doubt setting in. And she is really struggling to make her way into the world in the way she wants to. She wants to be in Hollywood, the theater, high society, and none of it's really happening. She eventually joins a touring company of a show. And it's at that point she visits her mom on a stop in Kansas City. She hadn't seen her mom since she left for New York City. And she's stunned at her mom's physical appearance. Her mom looks like she's aged 20 years in just a few years. Um, But it can't be just the grind that's wearing Ethel down. So Anne decides she's going to rush her to the hospital to see what's wrong. And she's really fearing the worst. Her mom is eventually diagnosed with a rare lung disease that's usually only found in cattle. So the fucking farm life got her eventually. She could not escape it. Anne at that point takes her mom back to New York City with her and begins paying for her care which quickly depletes her savings. She downsizes her apartment, and for the first time, she really appreciates what her mother had done for her. Gone was the resentment replaced by a newfound respect. She needed to find a job at night that let her care for her mom during the day and also audition. And luckily for her, right at that moment, a New York City nightclub called Fifi's Monte Carlo was about to reopen. Sounds fun. Now, there's a bunch of nightclubs happening in New York City that honestly I find so interesting. I would love to just get a book on all of these nightclubs and restaurants from in Hollywood and New York City from those days. Yeah. Because I feel like there's just probably so much juicy stories and stuff like that. This place is cool as hell. This was on Madison Avenue at 54th Street and they had designer Dorothy Draper decorated this place. It was like one of her first big things after she did the Carlisle Hotel if you don't know her, her style is very, um, she has the bright colors, but she'll all, often have a lot of black lacquer furniture yeah. to kind of contrast with it. Um, there's a really cool picture of a postcard of this place that I, I'll, I'll post on Instagram. Uh, anyway, so this was a very she-she club. She gets a job there as a dancer, basically a showgirl. It pays really well, and it also allows her to be seen by Hollywood and Broadway producers who go to this place all the time. Now, as World War II begins heating up, much like with the Depression, you wouldn't know it by looking at high society of New York City who are still out partying at these clubs uh, like like they're in the fucking Great Gatsby or whatever. <laughs> they're like, nothing's changed. Um, Anne works the midnight performance and the 3 a.m. performance, and she performs with two other ladies as the bunny girls. They wear white bathing suits, fishnet stockings, pink and white bunny ears, and a cotton tail, 
which is like a precursor to the Playboy Bunny. Yeah. Like this little sexy look. And she's a real standout on the stage as they do their dance because she has a complete lack of inhibition and she's just fucking shaking her pussy up. <laughs> she, she loves it. So after the performance, the girls would often mingle with the guest. Anne would recall one time chatting it up with Charlie Chaplin and they would get gifts from these regulars, jewelry, perfume, trips, money. Uh, it was rumored that Anne would reciprocate with sexual encounters. But by the time this stuff came out, she was already in the high society world and kind of was not admitting to this stuff. But who cares? It sounds fun. In March of 1941, she was visiting Ethel at the hospital when the doctor said, Ethel's fine. You go home and get some rest. When she arrives home, she gets a call that her mother died shortly after she left. 45 years old she was when she died, which is awful. That's so young. Um, Obviously, this devastates Anne. And like, dude, that doctor really blew it. (laughs) What the hell? Um, So she takes her mom's body back to Kansas where she buries it next to um, Ethel had a few, like the son who died and she also had a stillborn baby. So she's buried with her deceased children. She promises um, she will never return to the Midwest again. And back in New York City, She's really consumed by grief because she had really rebonded with her mom when this happened. Uh, she finally does, you know, feel better enough that she returns to work at Fifi's. And when she returns to work there, she has a new admirer, a man named William Woodward Sr. So we'll take a break here and come back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. 
With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So who is William Woodward Sr.? He is a man who's very rich and stuck in a dull marriage. He began uh, regularly going to Fifi's and kind of becomes smitten with Anne. He thinks Anne is like none of the women he knows in his high society circle. And he's really up there. He's a member of this very prominent and powerful banking family. He himself has made his own name in the lucrative world of thoroughbred um, horse breeding. This is so rich. I know. (laughs) Seriously. But he's honestly sick of his family. He doesn't like his wife. He's sick of his four daughters and his son. He hates his annoying sister-in-law. They all suck and are boring. (laughs) Like he's over it. His only happiness comes from horses and the young women he begins kind of seeing on the side. Now, Elsie would often hear about William arriving at an event with a young woman on his arm, but he pretty much... Both of them pretty much kept up appearances, like the wife, you know, the wife, and and he kind of is low key about it. It's like, oh, this is my coworker or my you know my horse breeder, <laughs> my horse brusher. God, I'm so they in. try to do it. They right. try, they try. Anne is obviously the latest vixen that brings a spark of joy to his boring life. So soon after her mom dies. Uh, at one of her performances, William invites Anne over to the table, which is kind of what happens at these places. The relationship progresses very quickly. And Anne is aware from the start that he's married and unlikely to leave his wife for her. But they're having fun. Uh, He gives her gifts, uh, like I said, of all the um, perfume, jewelry, money, everything, even dresses that she really has nowhere to wear because they're so fucking fancy. Um, Unlike some of the other customers she hangs around, William is different. He's very handsome. He's smart. He's witty. He's stylish and has like a real British vibe. One (laughs) one of the papers wrote about him because he spent some time in England and really took to it. Yeah. So he's kind of a dandy, like that style. And they say of William Woodward Sr. in this New York magazine, he's honed a lifelong practice of acting British. So he loves it. He's really Anne's dream guy, except for the married part. William met his wife, Elsie, in the horse world as well. She was also from old money. And the pair married, even though Elsie was not his first choice, she was fine. I mean, that's how how they did it back then. You had to find someone who was appropriate, right? In In those worlds. Yeah. They had a big wedding that was the event of the season. Um, But problems in the marriage literally started on the honeymoon. Elsie was distraught by the fact that her and her husband's sexual appetites were not a match. He had one and she didn't. She did not want to fuck this Mm. Elsie. Uh, Making matters even worse, an article ran in a newspaper 
shortly after their marriage, bemoaning the fact that William had married her rather than his ex, Mary, who was a better and more beautiful match for him. Oh, that would be devastating. I feel like Mary planted that story. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, fine, take the horse girl. Since sex was out of the question, they both focused on other things. William became even more obsessed with business and horses and his side pieces. And Elsie was obsessed with status. She was constantly peeved by people with apartments and vacation homes that she felt she deserved. She was irked they weren't as rich as some of the other richies. And worst of all, despite their prosperity, they were still not considered part of the McAllister's 400. This was New York, New York City Society's most inner circle. The author and social aristocrat Ward McAllister had coined this term for the number of socially prominent people who would fit into the ballroom of Carolyn Astor. Damn. <laughs> so when he expanded on the idea, he said, if you go outside that number, you shake people who are either not at ease in a ballroom or else make other people not at ease. So the Woodward, Woodwards are kind of like the B tier of socialites. Yeah. And Elsie was not happy. So as the marriage goes on, the affairs increase. Um, he, she knew he was kind of doing these on his frequent trips to England, um, but he started becoming unfaithful in New York as well, and that was like a little closer to home. She tried to ignore it at first. She created this very popular salon in the 1920s that really got big throughout the 30s and 40s and even continued until she died. I mean, a salon back then is like, you get together with all your rich bitch friends and you invite speakers sometimes. Yeah. Like, it's like, here's a famous author. He's going to talk to us at the salon. Yeah. So it's kind of like one of those things. Um, and William starts getting more nervous about his little uh, activities, his unfaithful activities in New York as well. Um, unlike many of the affairs he had had, the one was with Anne was kind of getting a little too much and sort of because it was more public being out at Fifi's, he was getting a little nervous. Um, so he knew that his wife would not take well to a scandal, and he had no plans to cause one. He did not want to damage his family's reputation or its ability to kind of thrive in New York City. So one night drinking at a cozy corner table at Fifi's Monte Carlo, he told Anne that they needed to end their relationship. But he still wanted to keep her close at hand because he still desired her and loved being around her. He had come up with the perfect scheme. Maybe Anne could use her seduction skills and try to fuck his son, Billy. (laughs) Wait a minute. Okay. How old is William Woodward Sr.? I think he's like in his 50s. And Anne is in her 20s. She's like in her later, yeah, like mid to late 20s at this point. And so the son... The son is five years younger than Anne. So he's young. So he's like a teenager or a late teen. He's like 19 or 20, I think. And he's like, this is a better age match. I think it's weird. Now, part of the I think reading. it is definitely weird to be fucking two people in the same family. So part of the part of the plan, part of the reason he came up with this plan was in addition to keep Anne around, he was also suspicious that his son was still a virgin. Wait a minute. <laughs> I just have a question. Was he still planning on fucking Anne even if she was fucking his son? I don't think so, but I don't think he had thought it all through. He just like was like, I need to be around this broad. I need some fucking Woodward dick in her. I don't yeah. care if it's 
<laughs> we, we right. The stake wood, our claim. Yeah. Um, he also began hearing rumors that Billy might be gay. So he was really uh, worried about that. He couldn't have those kind of rumors happening. So he's like, maybe Anne can teach him a thing or two about women and really turn him on to the fact that women are great. So Anne immediately says yes. <laughs> she's like, if I can't have the dad, I'll take the son. Wow. She isn't, she's not giving up this connection. So William Woodward Jr. called Billy was a staple of the society pages. He was often in stories that declared him to be the most eligible bachelor in America. He followed in his father's footsteps into the worlds of banking and thoroughbred horse racing. And although quite popular, he was kind of considered to be a man without a backbone ruled over by his domineering mother. Now, despite being the most eligible bachelor in America, he had shown no interest in women, leading many people to believe, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that he was not only a virgin, but possibly gay. I mean, even his best friend, Bean Baker. (laughs) Wait, his name's Bean? His best friend, Bean Baker, also thought, like, even his friends were like, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. So he grew up completely pampered by his four older sisters and was pretty much raised by governesses. Elsie would admit later on that being a mother was not her favorite activity. <laughs> if you have a if you have a governess, you're so rich. Yeah. I love that these people consider themselves not as rich as other wealthy yes. people, and they have governesses to raise them. Yeah, it's crazy. So as he grew older, his mom became more invested, however, because he, how he presented himself in the world would affect her and her, you know, how people saw their family. So as he entered the family business, his feelings of inadequacy really started rearing their head. He faced constant comparison to his dapper dad. Uh, and he was eager to make a name for himself outside of the family business, so he joined the Navy, earning a Purple Heart during World War II. Now, back at home, he finally becomes interested in women. War had made him a little reckless, and he really dove into this party playboy circuit with his partner in crime, Bean Baker. I, I like society names are so stupid They're sometimes. so dumb. They will literally name their kid something like Bean. Or like... <laughs> <laughs> or their daughter named like Tussie. Yeah. They'll <laughs> just like, be like, okay. All right. And we all accept it. Now, William Sr. at that point turns him on to Fifi's. The plan is set into motion. <laughs> and one night, Bean and Billy show up at 2.40 a.m. just in time to catch Anne's 3 a.m. show. When Anne looks out into the audience, she immediately recognized Billy from a photo William Sr. had shown her. So... It's on. Mm. Anna's like, there he is. She sees him in the audience and the plan is set into motion. So after her performance, the more outgoing Bean invites Anne to their table and Billy just like ogles her lustily. He's like, cannot believe this. She's like obviously very aware that he is rock hard for her. And she uses that to her advantage, obviously. She is smoking, blowing smoke in his face, crossing her little fishlet net legs. Her boobs are popping out of her bunny suit. And the virginal Billy is probably came in his pants, just like sitting there next to her. He was at, it was like cartoonish how powerless he was in front of this woman. And she's like five years older. Yeah. That's like a big difference between like 19 and whatever, 25. I don't know her exact age then. But yeah, it's like that's a huge difference because she's like a woman, right? Yeah. Um, they hook up, they had they like put together a uh, date uh, plan. So on their first date, he takes Anne to the 21 club. 
And they actually legitimately bond over mom issues. Anne really impresses Billy with her knowledge of horses, not letting him know that the knowledge came from her relationship with his dad. Oh. So he's like, wow, you really know your stuff. Because she'd gone to tons of races with the dad. Um, he knew his parents wouldn't approve, and that made him want her even more. She asked about his family out of politeness, and he loved that she had no idea what family he came from, <laughs> but Anne knew everything. Yeah. So they soon began having an affair, and it wasn't long before they became engaged. Elsie was aghast. Even William Sr. was like, yo, I just wanted you to pop his cherry and marry him. He's like, shit, what have I done? But Billy is smitten, and he really wants to nail Anne down. In August of 1942, Billy drives Anne to Saratoga Springs for a big horse race, and this is sort of her official debut as his new fiance. He normally hated these kind of stuffy rich people events, but this one he was relishing. He loved knowing how introducing Anne to his world would be kind of a huge middle finger to all those stuffy bitches. Uh, Elsie was obviously horrified because she hadn't met Anne yet. So he just brings in this bleach blonde, brazen, loud woman who's smoking and drinking, which is not done in these in this world, like the way she's doing it. Like she's literally in need of smelling salts. She's like fainting <laughs> at the sight of this. Anne is getting disapproving glances left and right, and Anne is not phased by it. She just keeps on keeping on. She's having the time of her life. Billy doesn't mind. And Elsie is like, this is a classic gold digger. Like, right. what is going on here? Um, but Anne was defiant. Um, she and, and Elsie knew Anne was the type that was so defiant, she wouldn't be crushed by the disapproval of people like her and Gloria Vanderbilt. Like, it didn't matter to Anne, which was scary. And she was right. Anne was well-trained by her mother to stand strong in the face of adversity, and she became even more resolved to marry Billy. Now, Elsie actually hires a private investigator to dig into Anne's background. She's horrified uh, that Anne wasn't even born in a hospital. She was born in a black box on a farm. (laughs) (laughs) And she's obviously, there's the divorces. The mom had numerous relationships. The dad had their their fucking relationship. And she's further shocked to find out about Anne's work at Fifi's. She didn't know about Fifi's. Then the detective shows her a gift that Billy gave uh, Anne, and it was a gold braces, and she's like, that is a family heirloom. She's <gasps> giving heirlooms to harlots. I love how <laughs> these society people, they're so scandalized by the activities of like poorer people's families when they're doing all the same things, just like with more money. And. And secrets, they have the means to cover it up yeah. or hide it. Because it's like, yeah, having you're fucking your neighbor. People are going to see you go over to your neighbor's house. <laughs> right. But when you can get hotel rooms and make things really secretive, it's yeah. much easier to kind of put things behind those secretive veils or whatever. Uh, yeah. Also, the things she's so outraged by are just so... It's like nowadays, it's like no one even thinks about divorce as a scandal. It's right. like sad or maybe uh, unexpected. But whatever, yeah. I like that she's mad that she was born on a farm. She's just in a back room, and she's like, that's where they slaughter animals. It's like, not in the house. Um, So she tells Billy everything, including a tidbit she found out regarding Anne's affair with actor Franchot Tone, who was married to Joan Crawford when she had it. She banged her idol's husband. That is 
that a is, big power move. That is like the ultimate. Like, I love it. Um, and Billy, of course, is only more hot for her after yeah. hearing all this. He's like, I want to fuck that barn baby. No, <laughs> She's a hot barn bitch. He, he loves it. Like, yeah. she, Elsa doesn't realize he's like getting off on this shit and you, pissing his mom off. You wanted to get your son horny. Well, this is what he's horny for. Yes. So he's like, I'm marrying her. Um, he had never seen himself as this rebellious type before, but now he's like super into it. And they each provide for the other something that they both desperately want. Anne obviously is a break for him from the stuffy, restrictive world he grew up in. And Billy is Anne's ticket to that stuffy world that she had always dreamed being a part of. Anne knew she had to play her cards right and seal the deal. When Billy was called back into the military, Anne saw this as her opportunity to push for a wartime wedding, which was very common during this time. The groom was about to go off to war. They would get married, uh, you know, so he had something to come home to, basically. But Anne was sort of using it to tie him down because he probably is not the type who would go off if he didn't want to. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, he gets sent to Tacoma, Washington for gunnery training. And he, you know, promises Anne that he will think about getting married before he has to possibly be sent off. It wasn't long before he agreed, telling Anne that he would do it, but she had to go go to Washington State to have it done because he was stuck where he whatever he was doing in military world. Anne packed for a cross country train trip excitedly, but before she left, Elsie called her to Manhattan, her Manhattan home for tea. So Elsie had conceded the fact that she had lost this battle to keep her son from marrying Anne. And she invites Anne over to kind of give her the lowdown of what her life will now be like. She tells Anne that now that she's going to be a part of the family, there are certain expectations she is expected to meet, all this society rules and being polite and being seen as this kind of woman. And primarily that means you have to quit your job at Fifi's. I mean, it's a ridiculous request because Anne was like, sure. I mean, your yeah. hus- my husband's going to take care of me at that point. I'm not working at Fifi's. Um, but she had to also bite her tongue from not revealing that Fifi's was where she met her husband and son. Yeah. Like, Aunt Elsie didn't even know they were going to places like that. Wow. So she's like, eh, William, your husband was there last night right. carousing. So, Okay. Um, they do get married, and as a clear indication of how Elsie felt about it, the wedding announcement was not made in the New York Times, but in the Newport Mer- Mercury and the Weekly News. She Damn. was hoping no one would see it. In Elsie's mind, Anne would be a stain on the family. Anne was the woman you had fun with before settling down with a proper lady, and she was convinced that this would not end well. And she was right. Wow. We'll get to the what happens next week. I can't wait. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that is the story. That's the beginning story of Anne Woodward. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we'll have some good pictures. Yeah, we'll post those on our Instagram, at Hollywood Crime Scene. We're live in Austin on September 26th. Yeah, that's a Tuesday at seven fifteen p.m. If you if you live in the Austin area, come see us. We're playing at Cap City Plain. Like we're gonna play instruments. Yeah, we're playing. We're playing. We're performing at Cap City Comedy Club in Austin. 
Yeah, you have to come. Yeah. Buy your tickets now. Get your tickets now. And we want to see you. Yeah, we want to see you guys. We're going to have a fun time. So uh, Anyway, uh, we'll put links in the show notes to both our Patreon and our tickets to our Austin show. So, yeah. Enjoy. Bye. We'll see you next time. We'll see you soon for a mini episode, and we're going to record an after show shortly, which will be on our Patreon. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye.